1: Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked
2: Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, coming up in this week's show, how the lengths of your fingers can determine whether you've got the Midas touch, at least when it comes to making money on the stock exchange. Also, how scientists have tapped into a rich new source of antibiotics by by tapping into a series of tiny marine creatures, and also how researchers have discovered the way in which rheumatoid arthritis damages joints, and that promises to bring us new ways to treat the disorders. And that's all coming up in a moment, Kat.
3: Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we are looking at the weighty problem of obesity and weight gain to find out how the genes that you carry can affect your chances of becoming overweight and how scientists are developing new ways to combat this problem. We're also going to be hearing that what a woman eats when she's pregnant could make a lifetime of difference to the health of her offspring by altering the genes that are switched on in the baby.
2: Thank you very much, Kat. And also on the way, we'll be looking at one very radical approach to treating excess weight. The fat is sort of sucked through these
4: holes, and as you move the cannula back and forth, it pulls it, drags it away.
2: mirosenthalingham has been finding out about the painful subject of liposuction. That's all coming up. So if you've got a question for us or some feedback about the Naked Scientist programme, the email address for us is chris at NakedScientist.com.
1: The Naked Scientist Podcast Powered by UKFast The UK's best hosting provider On the web at ukfast.net
2: This week, scientists have announced that there's a good way to predict the effect of your effectiveness of your broker on the stock exchange, and that's to measure the length of their fingers. This is John Coates, who's got a paper in the journal PNAS this week, where he and his colleagues have measured the fingers of 44 traders on the stock market, and they have calculated what's called the 2D to 4D ratio. So the second digit the index finger, you compare the length of that with the length of your ring finger, the fourth digit. If the fourth digit is significantly longer than the second digit, this can be used as a measure of exposure to testosterone when you're developing as a baby. In fact, some of the genes that help you to develop the urogenital system are also involved in the development of the limbs and fingers, and so that's the tie-up with testosterone, and so you can use the length of these fingers as an index of how much testosterone you've had. And an amazing pattern emerged when they studied these traders and their trading habits because what they found was that the people who had the evidence of the lowest 2D to 4D ratio, in other words, their ring finger was much longer than their index finger and therefore they'd had the most testosterone in the womb, those people made the most money. And so this, says John Coates, is probably because if you look at sportsmen, when people are on the playing field and they're playing aggressive games like rugby, Australian rules football, ice hockey, those kind of games those kind of games are favoured by people who are very testosterone rich, testosterone rich androgen rich and People who have a very strong 2D to 4D ratio, in other words, they've had a lot of testosterone during their upbringing, during their development, they tend to do much better at those kind of sports. And he's arguing that the kind of trading they were studying in London, where people are making very fast trades, they're having to react very quickly to second by second or at most minute by minute fluctuations in prices, this requires very fast reaction times, very similar to the way in which you would need to react to something on the sports field. And for that reason, that's why this particular... A Configuration is benefited in the same way as you would be benefited if you were doing sports. So, in future, when you're going to make a trade on the stock market, the first thing you have to do when you phone up your broker is to measure their fingers before you threaten to break them. Cat.
3: Could explain why I'm so poor as well. My four fingers are really short and I'm very ladylike. Uh, anyway, it's a completely different subject. As you can read in any paper, there are big problems we know about today with hospital acquired infections. These are people who pick up nasty bugs in hospital. And adding to that, we have the problem of antibiotic resistance. It means that we have fewer weapons in our fight against bacteria. And so the search is on for scientists to find new antibiotics. And now researchers at the University of Kiel in Germany have found an unexpected source of these new bug busters. And these are tiny animals known as hydra. These are tiny creatures, they're just a few millimetres long, and they live in freshwater ponds and streams. And they're called hydra after the mythical beast that had you know, loads of serpents on, on its head because they're a little stump with lots of tentacles on. They're quite cute little things. Um, Writing in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, Joachim Gretzinger and his colleagues have discovered a new protein in hydra and they've called it hydromacin-1 very original, and it has powerful antibacterial action. Now, what makes this protein unusual is that it isn't at all similar to most of the other antimicrobial proteins that scientists have previously discovered. It seems to be a completely new protein family. And they looked at the 3D structure of it, and they found that it's most closely related to a superfamily of proteins that include some found in scorpion venom, uh, some in leeches as well. And this is potentially powerful because it means this is a totally new angle to try in The War on Bugs. Now, when they tested it in the lab, they showed that hydromacin-1 could kill a wide range of different bacteria, including bugs called Klebsiella oxytoca, which are a common culprit in these hospital inquired infections. And the researchers found that hydromacin-1 works actually by sticking to the surface of bacteria. It causes them to lump together and eventually this breaks the cell membranes and the bacteria die. Now, this is a long way from being a useful microbicide that maybe you could give to patients or you could use as a, a wash in hospitals, but it is a new angle that we can try in the war on bugs
2: how do they seek to exploit this is it going to be a case of just copying the gene and then tweaking it a little bit or is it going to be taking the mechanism and then starting from fresh to make something that does the same thing but it's entirely artificial
3: i think it's really too early to tell because they've only really just discovered this family of proteins and discovered that they could have antibacterial action so it's really this is a, a new start for a new avenue in research
2: We're talking of treating people with nasty diseases. Rheumatoid arthritis is a nasty disease. In fact, it affects about one person in every 100. So it's very common. And in the UK, it costs the health service about £1.2 billion every single year. So the more we can do to find out why people get rheumatoid arthritis and how to treat it, the better. Well, this week there's a paper in the journal PLOS Medicine, and this has been written by Constantino Pizzalis, who's a researcher at the London Medical School down in London, and he and his team have made a dramatic discovery about how the disease actually attacks joints. They took samples from the joint spaces of people who are affected by rheumatoid arthritis, and they took cells out of the joint and discovered that what's going on is that a kind of white blood cell which normally fights infection called a B cell, a B lymphocyte, those cells home in on affected joints in the disease and they form structures called germinal centers and germinal centers behave like antibody factories they produce antibodies inside the joint and these antibodies then attack the joint and they promote and provoke the disease and the way in which they did this was by taking those cell samples out they were able to put clusters of these cells into mice called skid mice that don't have any immune system and then follow what happened to those cells in the mice and the cells continue to produce These antibodies in the mice for up to 90 days. Why this is important is apart from proving that the joints make these antibodies in situ and that's how they end up being attacked, the ability to make these antibodies in mice like this is a very powerful way to develop new treatments and size up new drugs for rheumatoid arthritis because what the researchers are saying is that what we can now do is to develop specific strategies and try specific strategies on specific patient samples with various drugs that are out there that are capable of killing this particular class of cells. Because in order to treat the disease, you need to get rid of these cells that are making these antibodies to your joints. If you can selectively kill those cells, the disease could be pushed into remission. And so you can test these drugs very cheaply and very simply on these animal models. And this means you're very much able to accelerate the process of drug discovery and therapeutics. So that's out this week and is a major dent in a major disease.
3: Yeah, because the the drugs are really expensive, aren't they, the the rheumatoid drugs? They use gold and all sorts of precious metals in them.
2: Well, in the old days it was pretty simple. You gave people steroids and sometimes they got a bit better, but very often they didn't. And now we have a a panoply of agents which are called disease-modifying drugs, these biological agents, which do or don't always make a difference but they are very expensive and you only find out whether they're going to make a difference after you've given them to somebody but by then you've already paid the price which is a big bill to the NHS and it may not actually work in that person so we need a better strategy to tailor the therapy better to the individual.
3: Ah, important stuff. And now to a very uh, different but very important disease as well, which is postnatal depression. This does affect a significant proportion of new mothers, and some studies suggest that around 1 in 20 women may be affected, while others show that as many as 1 in 4 new mums could get postnatal depression. And now not only is this a problem for the mother, but it has a major impact on her child and its care, and in the worst cases it can actually lead to women taking their own lives. This is obviously very serious. And new mums with postnatal depression may be offered antidepressants, but many don't really want to take them, especially if they're breastfeeding as well. But now researchers from the University of Toronto have discovered that talking things through with someone who understands what you're going through could actually cut the chances of postnatal depression by around half. And this is work by Dr Cindy Lee Dennis and her team, and they're writing in the British Medical Journal this week. They used a web based tool to screen more than 21,000 new mothers in the Canadian province of Ontario to find those who seem to be at most risk of developing postnatal depression. And you can use a number of sort of social and all kinds of markers to work out who's at the most risk. Then they recruited around 700 women, divided them randomly into two groups, good design for clinical trial. Uh, One group got the standard postnatal care that that all women would receive and the other group got the same care but they also had telephone support from a volunteer who'd been through postnatal depression. And the researchers found that the mums who got this support over the phone had half the risk of developing depression three months after their birth than women who just got standard care. Around eight out of tent said they thought it was great, they were satisfied with it and they'd recommend it to a friend as well. So it's a very cheap intervention very effective intervention and Dr Dennis says that women and their families really need to know a lot more about postnatal depression and putting new mums who are at risk in touch with women who've been through it could really be a great way to help but also we need doctors, nurses, midwives all these health professionals to be aware of the risks, aware of the symptoms put in the right support at the right time.
2: One also wonders how people used to cope in days gone by when these kind of things were under-recognised underdiagnosed and undertreated it's amazing we're all we're still here (laughs) exactly thank you cat well also this week scientists have made a very dramatic discovery on mars and that's the discovery of methane seeping to the surface but where's it coming from could it be coming scientists are wondering from underground life well joining us from nasa's goddard center for astrobiology is one of the scientists who made that discovery dr mike mummer hello mike hi good morning chris welcome to the naked scientist thank you for joining us so tell us a little bit about this methane how did you find it in the first place
5: Well, we were searching for it uh, since 1999, actually, and we're using a uh, a spectroscopic uh, technique uh, from the summit of Mauna Kea, which is a very uh, high volcano in in Hawaii, uh, 14,000 feet, where unlike most of Hawaii, it actually snows once in a while. In any case, uh, we started uh, then, and by 2003, we had actually detected the gas using a technique called infrared spectroscopy and looking for vibrational bands of of methane and uh, indeed of water at the same time. They're measured simultaneously in our instrument.
2: Why did you go looking for it in the first place, Mike?
5: Well, of course, uh, one would not expect to find methane on Mars because it's an oxidizing atmosphere unless it were released uh, very recently, because otherwise the lifetime of methane would be too short to have a significant abundance in the atmosphere. And so the uh, general view is that uh, if methane is released, it could only be coming from one of two potential sources, uh, one being uh, geochemistry of uh, one of two kinds and the other being a a, a biology of one or two uh, natures.
2: So you think Uh, that in the same way that the early Earth was populated by methanogens, bacteria that make methane, and actually were quite beneficial to us because they they warmed up Earth and made it the propitious environment for other kinds of life like us to exist later, you think the same thing might be happening on Mars?
5: It very well could be. In fact, we can take a message from the uh, deep biosphere below uh, South Africa uh where uh, scientists have discovered that uh, there are uh bacteria down there which actually metabolize in, the, in the total absence of sunlight and they uh use radiolysis uh, to break water uh into uh, molecular hydrogen and oxygen and then the, the bacteria uh basically eat that uh, hydrogen and uh, produce a gas called uh, hydrogen sulfide as a as a result it's not a great stretch to imagine that methanogens might exist in a similar environment on Mars and could, in fact, be using energy uh, that had been uh, from radiolysis and so on, releasing uh, producing this methane which is then released into the atmosphere.
2: So having identified the fact that you've got this methane signal in the atmosphere around Mars, how did you then further develop the investigation to try and work out where it was coming from?
5: Well, we use a uh, spectrometer that has an entrance, a long entrance slit, and we place that slit along the north-south meridian of the planet, the, the midline dividing the, the eastern and west hemispheres. And then we uh, we take a, uh, s- about 50 spectra, that's 50, uh, 50 locations along the slit, and a cadence of every 60 seconds. So every 60 seconds, we get a new set of spectra, 50 of them. And then, uh, depending on how we uh, combine those spectra, we can choose the uh, range of longitudes that will pass under the slit uh, during the uh, the bend uh, interval. Uh, So, for example, uh, in the case of uh, a five- or six-hour interval, uh, Mars will rotate uh, approximately uh, 60 to 80 degrees of longitude in that time. And this way, we can uh, then later convert the measured spectra Uh, taking latitude from top to bottom of the slit and longitude with time and and develop a map uh, for methane and of course also for water.
2: So the planet effectively, because it's rotating, surveys itself, which is very convenient. Um, What did this tell you? What did you see?
5: The big surprise uh, was not just that we had uh, detected methane, uh, but actually we see three regions of active release uh, which are uh, fairly closely grouped. They're within about 500 to 1,000 kilometers of one another. One region is over the uh, district called Neely Fossi. This is a, a canyon system which is uh, uh, known to uh, be a site where phyllosilicates, clay clay minerals that form in uh, liquid water, and also carbonates uh, are uh, found by uh, uh, Mars Express and also by the... Uh, uh, an instrument on the uh, Mars Observer spacecraft. Uh, in any case, uh, what's interesting is this is a, also a region of intense release of methane, and of course methane uh, could be associated with water uh, early in Mars history or even now below the surface and produced produce by biology at this time.
2: Is the release that you're seeing constant? Are you continuously seeing methane pumping out, or does it come in spurts?
5: Well, in fact, uh, it does not come out continuously. Uh, We find that uh, between uh, midsummer in the north, when we see the maximum release, and the the next equinox season, um, the methane is largely destroyed by about a factor, uh, reduced by a factor of two on Mars uh, by a process we think is related to airborne dust. So uh, this methane is being released uh, now uh, in midsummer in the north, that's what we reported this week and indeed we think uh, this is a very important uh, window into an active Mars which we have not had before.
2: So the obvious question now is you've got two choices, it's either life or it's not life, it's something geological. You've got to answer that question, how are you going to do it?
5: Well we've started to test uh, these two hypotheses uh, one, of course, is to look for additional gases that uh, would accompany either geochemical production or biological production. So we've started a deep search for those gases uh, in 2006, uh, unfortunately at a season of equinox when we don't see met- methane ever, so they weren't so very meaningful then, but we're beginning again uh, this fall, beginning in August of 2009. Uh, at the uh, Very Large Telescope in uh, ESO's uh, Southern Observatory.
2: So we'll just have to watch this space for more fertile findings from Mars. We must leave it there. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Mummer, who's the director of NASA's Goddard Centre for Astrobiology. He and his team have announced that discovery in this week's Science. This is the Naked Scientist for Chris Smith and Kat Arney, and we're talking this week, as well as uh, about Martians, We're also talking about the science of obesity, so if you have any questions for us about that, you can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Keeping you
1: abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and with Chris Smith. This week we're talking about the genetics of obesity and how what a woman eats when she's pregnant could affect the long-term health of her offspring. But first let me remind you that we do put up a full transcript of this programme on our website and that transcript includes all of the references to the published news items that we discuss in our news as well as photographs illustrating what our interview guests are talking about and what they're discussing The website also allows you to listen to individual parts of the programme. So to find that, you just have to visit thenakedscientist.com forward slash podcasts, and if you click on the titles of the shows, you'll find the transcripts and the listen links. Now at this point, I must also say thank you to Black Pig, who are the Cambridge-based full-service design agency who have helped us to redesign our site. So if you like the look of what they do, do consider using them. They're at blackpig.co.uk.
3: But now it's time for this week's Kitchen Science. This week it's all about food, and in particular, because it's been mine and Dr Chris's birthdays, it's about birthday party food. So here's Ben and Dave.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's Kitchen Science, where because it's Dr Chris's birthday this week, happy birthday Chris, we have decided that we will make some kitchen science party food. Now, of course, Dave couldn't resist the chance to do an experiment with some party food, so Dave, what have you done, and
6: will it still be edible? It should be entirely edible, so if you want to do this at home, you can eat it afterwards. That's fine. What we're going to do is make some jelly, or for those more American-minded of you jello, and we're going to chuck in some different fruit and see what happens. This doesn't really sound like an experiment so far. It just sounds like making party food. But what fruit have you brought with you? I brought a selection of fruit. I've got some apple, some orange, some kiwi, some pineapple, and some tin pineapple.
0: Okay, well, this all sounds very delicious so far. Uh, is there anything special
6: about the jelly that you're using? No, just bog-standard jelly from a supermarket, made up as a direction suggests. I'm going to pour it over the chopped-up fruit and leave it in the fridge for a couple of hours to set.
0: Now, of course, jelly does take a couple of hours to set, so people won't be able to do this during the show. And I can see that you've already poured all of this out, and we're going to leave it to set now. So why do you think this is worthy of kitchen science?
6: Well, you may have heard that you shouldn't make jelly using some fruits, so I thought we'd do an experiment to
0: find out which. OK, well, we will get our jelly mix into the fridge now. We have one with apple, one with orange, one with kiwi fruit, one with tinned pineapple and one with fresh pineapple. And, of course, we're doing one with no fruit whatsoever. Personally, I'm looking forward to eating it. Almost as much as I'm looking forward to finding out about the science of jelly and fruit. So we will be back later on in the show.
3: And we'll be joining Ben and Dave as they test out their party food concoctions later on. But what do you think is going to happen? If you think you know why jelly might act differently with different fruits, do let us know. Our email address is chris at com.
2: Thank you, Kat. And if you have any questions for us about the science of obesity, the genes of obesity, or epigenetics, that's what Lucilla studies, she's coming on shortly, then send them in too.
1: Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris Smith and Dr Kat Arney, and we're talking this week about the genes that cause you to gain too much weight and also the hormones that regulate your weight. And someone who's an expert on that is from Imperial College, Professor Steve Bloom. Hello, Steve. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. Let's put some numbers on it, first of all. How big a problem now is Obesity.
7: About 80 excess deaths a day in the UK at the moment, so that's an awful lot of people who are dying prematurely. It's a really serious condition.
2: Linked to what sorts of things? What are these people dying of? Well,
7: mostly heart disease, stroke, uh, diabetes, but really the interesting thing that we found only recently is it virtually doubles your cancer rate, so it's rather more serious for cancer than is, let's say, cigarette smoking.
2: Do you have any clue as to why it might do that?
7: Well, for certain sorts of cancer, for example, cancer of the uterus or breast, hormones get converted in fat tissue into something that's more deleterious for you. But actually, several other types of cancer are affected, which don't have any real reason. So... We assume there's some sort of growth factor, but actually don't know the details. All we do know is if you do something about the obesity, the cancer rates drop back again. So it looks as if it really is the cause.
2: Some people have suggested that because our body strives to maintain a constant body weight, that if you take too many calories in, it has to burn off some of that excess. And that in the process of burning off some of the excess, it could produce harmful chemicals, things like free radicals, that will damage your DNA, and that could provoke cancer.
7: People have been uh, attempting to find something about free radicals for a very long time, and so far it remains rather theoretical. And, in fact, metabolic rate isn't very much affected by obesity. Uh, It turns out that in the UK we've been eating, if anything, slightly less, but we have, in fact, been taking a lot less exercise over the last 20 years, and the reason for us getting fatter is that we have a mismatch between the amount we eat and the amount of exercise we take. We're actually eating slightly less.
2: So why are we seeing these record levels of obesity? What's going on?
7: Well, basically you don't walk up the stairs anymore, you take the elevator. I was reading an old history book and somebody living in London wanted to go to Brighton, so he walked. Would anyone walk to Brighton today?
2: Would anyone go to Brighton today? No, I'm just joking, just joking. But let's look at at actually how appetite gets determined and, and controlled in the body. So what do we now understand about what makes me want to put food into me and then stop eating when I'm full?
7: Well, it's completely normal to want to overeat were a species that survived endless famines and the people that lived through the famine were the people that put on extra weight when there was food around. And indeed, you can think of it during the summer when there's a harvest or lots of game to catch. If you don't put on more weight, you won't live through the lean winter. And so we're designed to get fat. And the trouble is that the supermarkets are providing us with delicious food, high-calorie food, all the time, all through the year, in fact, year in and year out. So we have, relatively speaking, too much food, and as I say, we don't take enough exercise.
2: But as you say, our genes are dictating that we store this energy, but how are our genes telling us to behave the way that we do, to overeat?
7: Well, that's just the way we're designed. If you didn't overeat when food was plentiful, you died out in the next famine. So we are the survivors of endless famines. We are the people that stole the last crust of bread... And actually, rather interestingly, if you use up too much energy, you also don't live. So you can not describe the human race as greedy and lazy.
2: It's a present <laughs> thought, isn't it? But um, one thing to point out, Steve, I mean, what about the, the fact that hormones must have a role to play in this? Because um, I feel full when I eat something. I can also detect changes in the levels in the blood of various chemicals. So tell us a bit about those.
7: Well, if we think of something like a vole or a mouse or a rat, if they don't get into their hole in a hurry, they get eaten. And we know that predation of small mammals, and we are evolved from small mammals that live through the dinosaur era, um, predation increases as they get fat, and they can't get away quite so fast. So it's really rather important not to allow obesity to get out of control. So we do indeed have hormones which regulate our appetite. And our own research has been on the very simple question, why do you feel less hungry after eating lunch? What are you finding? Well, we find that the gut releases a lot of satiety-inducing hormones. So when you take food in, the hormones are released from the gut, go around the circulation, act on a central part of the brain called the hypothalamus, where all the drives are located, and decrease your desire to eat. And, of course, this gives quite an interesting therapeutic possibility, as you might imagine.
2: But the fact is that some people do eat too much, So, and they weren't always fat. So why is it that some people gain weight and other people seem to be able to eat whatever they like and they don't?
7: Well, if one assumes that our appetite level is set too high for modern society, what you might call the obesogenic environment with delicious food and no need for exercise, um, then we're all following our natural genetic propensity to put on weight in this sort of environment. Now it's obvious that some people put on more weight than others, and in fact, a tendency to put on more weight runs very, very markedly in families. So if your parents were overweight, you tend to be overweight. If your parents were thin, you tend to be thin. And this is true even if you're an orphan and brought up in another household. So if your parents are thin, but you're brought up in a fat person household, you still stay thin. So genes are very, very important, but they're the add-on to the obesogenic environment. In other words, what they do is they allow you to deal with an obesogenic environment or otherwise. One of the most interesting things about the human race is our tremendous variability. It was clearly an advantage that some people were good at firing arrows and other people were good at cooking and looking after the children. And so it seems that some of us are good at surviving famines and others of us are thin and lithe and able to fight off the enemy and that a successful tribe has representatives of both.
2: It's a bit like those ant colonies that have an ant that just acts as a living larder where all the other ants feed it and it becomes stuffed with sugar and then during the hard times it disgorges some of this sugar and keeps the other ants alive again. But let's focus on the hormones that are doing this because that's probably the the area of most interest now because they're relatively recently discovered. What mediators of appetite do we know about now?
7: If I can just step back and say we have no very good treatments for obesity, no medicines that you can take that will destroy your appetite but there is one procedure that really works and gets fat people to be thin and thin for the next 20 years, and that's bypass surgery, which bypasses the upper gut. And basically what that does is it fools the gut into thinking something's wrong, it's eaten a lot of food, when actually it hasn't, and it then releases a lot of these hormones, and we can measure them and show that they're very high. So this successful surgical procedure... Works by chronically increasing the release of these satiety hormones from the gut. The trouble with the surgery is it's got a 1 in 30 death rate and it's really quite expensive and pretty arduous. So, on the whole, I'd rather not go in for the surgery if I had an option. The objective of our research is to isolate these hormones, purify them, make them long-acting, and then make them available as some sort of therapeutic administration to chronically restrain people's appetites as if they had something wrong with their gut so that they don't feel hungry all the time and therefore can lose weight.
2: And have you got any molecules that might show promise in this direction yet?
7: Yes, we've got several. In fact, we successfully set up a spin-out company which um, developed one and began to administer it in, in humans and has now been adopted by a large pharmaceutical company as one of their leading products in the field of obesity, so we're quite pleased that that's likely to go go on. Uh, Meanwhile, my laboratory is working on several more, um, because there's not just one hormone, there's about four of them, and uh, the body normally works by releasing several. This actually is probably an important safety feature, so that if you get a parasite or something in your gut, it can't fool the body into losing its appetite spuriously, because you need to have more than one hormone to really have the effect this makes it a little difficult to develop a successful therapy, but we think we've done it now, actually.
2: Well, we'll just have to watch this space with that one. Thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Steve Bloom from Imperial College, explaining why obesity isn't just as simple as people eating too much. Thankfully, though, there might be a solution. Cat.
3: Yes, you're know, listening to The Naked Scientists, and we are looking into the weighty problem of obesity. Now, in today's show and this week, Mira Ling has been investigating a way to lose weight that doesn't involve dieting or exercise. It seems like my dream come true, but it does cost a lot of money.
8: Well, it's that time of year for resolutions and promises that many of us make to fulfil the phrase, a new year, a new you. Now, as well as many people quitting smoking or changing their image... For many others, this means trying to lose some weight. But in this day and age, with cosmetic surgery becoming quite a common occurrence, some people resort to liposuction to remove this weight. So this week, I'm at the Cadogan Clinic, a day surgery centre in London, and with me is Dr Brian Mayhew, the man who first introduced liposuction to the UK. So Brian, what exactly is liposuction?
4: Well, liposuction is simply removing fat by the most convenient way. Uh, You can just remove fat by cutting it out, but then you're left with scars and a rather uneven shape. With liposuction, you can take the fat out quite smoothly, and it's basically loosened by rasping it with the end of this tube or cannula that we use and sucking it out into a bottle. And once it's sucked out, it doesn't come back.
8: So why does actually sucking out the fat make a bigger difference than, say, if someone lost weight and just reduced their fat cells?
4: Normally, when people put on weight, fat cells just get bigger. And when they lose weight, they get smaller. But there's no reduction in number of cells. But here, we're reducing the number of cells and therefore the shape.
8: OK, well, we're actually down in one of your operating theatres at the moment and I can see the liposuction machine in front of me. It's um, kind of a tall rectangular unit which has bags of solution hanging from the top of it. How does this overall machine work to actually suck fat out of people?
4: Well, the basic principle is that we've got uh, a suction machine and we, we suck out the fat as fast as we can so the maximum we can achieve is one vacuum. So we try and get as close to that. We have some fluid in bags to which we add adrenaline to reduce bleeding. It constricts the blood vessels. There's bicarbonate as well, and, and this is used to adjust the pH to the body pH. If it's not the same pH, it's uncomfortable. And local anaesthetic, short-acting and long-acting very often the patients are actually asleep during this it's under general anaesthesia but it's perfectly possible to do it under local in this particular machine which i use the body jet machine the water assisted machine there is a small tube coming up the cannula or the that uh, squirts out like a pressure washer the local anaesthetic and if you just do it slowly people don't don't feel any pain fat doesn't have a lot of uh, nerve endings in it and then we suck out the fat in an, in an even manner.
8: So does this solution break up the fat cells and just make it a lot easier then to suck up the fat afterwards?
4: Generally, the, the removal of the fat is done by the rasping action of the blunt end of the cannula. It's just the mechanical action of the fat against these... Uh, blunt edges of the cannula. The fat is sort of sucked through these holes, and as you move the cannula back and forth, it pulls it, drags it away from its bearings. Dragging it away is better than cutting it. If you cut, the vessels bleed. If you drag them, they tend to contract. However, in this water-assisted technique, this slight pressure of fluid does dislodge the fat, so that's really quite useful where the fat's difficult to remove.
8: Is it purely fat cells you are sucking out so is there any risk of sucking out any other things in the process
4: most of the areas we're treating there is only fat there beneath the skin and the, and the next layer down is the muscle which is pretty resistant to, to trauma
8: i'd like to know a bit about what happens to the person afterwards what are the risks of infection and things with this procedure is it just the same as any other type of surgery
4: infection really doesn't occur with liposuction unless one's doing something else as well some skin excision some other operation as well Uh, bleeding with the adrenaline it's reduced but it is only bruising uh, and it does uh, disappear Uh, so after about three weeks the visible bruising has gone and depending on the area of the body uh, the healing process continues and uh, deeper damage heals too usually over about three months.
8: Now what about the actual functioning of the patient's Metabolism. So you've just removed all these fat cells from the person. What would happen to them if they were to then put on weight? Uh, They'd
4: put on weight elsewhere in exactly the same way as they did before the operation. It doesn't affect that at all. They don't put it on at a greater or lesser uh, rate, but they don't have the fat being put on in the area that's treated. So it's a permanent change of shape.
8: So even if someone does have liposuction, they should really be having a kind of a healthy diet and reasonably moderate exercise afterwards in order to keep themselves that way.
4: Uh, yes, that's absolutely right.
8: Now, by the sounds of it, this procedure is quite purely aesthetic, so it's not an actual treatment for obesity as such.
4: Uh, no, it isn't really. And if you, were, if you were going to remove that amount of fat, it would be many very big procedures, and it would probably be very difficult to get the result even. Uh, and the other limitation is just the general effect on the body, that uh, if we're removing more than about three or four litres of fat, uh, there's going to be a lot of bleeding and therefore the haemoglobin will drop and people feel very weak afterwards.
8: Now, could liposuction be helped to, say, reduce the effects or um, chances of getting obesity-related diseases at all, such as, say, diabetes?
4: I have, at the request of physicians, treated fat people who are diabetic, to try and improve the control of the diabetes. Now, I haven't, we haven't done enough to know whether this is very effective or not, but we certainly that was the principle that we were working to, and, uh, and I think for some of those patients it did help them.
2: So whilst liposuction is certainly not a treatment for obesity, maybe it'll help to reduce the risk of getting some obesity-related diseases. We just don't know yet, but it certainly is an expensive way to do it with a treatment ranging for between one and £5,000, so very costly. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're talking about the genetics of obesity this week and we're also talking about epigenetics in just a second, how what a woman eats when she's pregnant could affect the health of her unborn child for the rest of its life. And also don't forget our kitchen science experiment. Dave and Ben were making some jelly this week and adding various things to it, fruits, and they added some pineapple, they added some kiwi fruit, they also added apple and oranges and things. Margaret and Clacton's been in touch and she said she doesn't know what the answer is or why, but she has found that when you add kiwi to a jelly it doesn't set so maybe the key is in there cat
3: Yes. Now, we've already heard how important hormones are in controlling obesity. But could obesity be determined as early as in the womb? Now, pregnant women are bombarded with information about what to do, what not to do, what to eat, what not to eat, and so on and so on. Um, But what does it actually mean for mothers? And if a woman is overweight and is pregnant, does it mean that your child's also likely to be overweight? Now, we're joined by Professor Lucilla Poston from King's College London. Hello. Good evening. And she's researching, among other things, how fetal nutrition ultimately affects people when they're they're grown up. So let, let's start by sort of looking at this whole thing about when you're pregnant, eating for two. Um, how does a woman's diet actually affect what's going on in in her developing baby?
9: Well, perhaps I should begin by saying it's never a good thing to eat for two um, and that's uh, what a lot of women believe, that they should eat more and you only need to eat a very little bit a bit more when you're, when you're pregnant. Um, we are beginning to see now a, a huge explosion in understanding of how diet in pregnancy can affect the developing child and uh, even increase the risk of some diseases as that child grows up. Most of the work which has been done so far has been in relation to undernutrition and people have shown that babies who are born small are more likely to develop diabetes and become obese when they grow up. But we're particularly interested in in our work in London in the effect of overeating in pregnancy and also if a woman is already obese when she becomes pregnant. Now it's been known for a long time that being obese in pregnancy is associated with lots of problems for the mum that... She may have more diabetes and more preeclampsia and more risk of stillbirth and so on. And that indeed is a huge problem in the United Kingdom at the moment. Um, But we do know now that the children of women who are obese tend to be obese themselves. And you may say, OK, well, that's because they live in the same family and they have the same genes and so on. But there are some studies which suggest that there is something going on in relation to what the mother's eating or whether she's fat and the relationship with the child's obesity. And there are some very good studies which suggest that that it is an independent association unrelated to genes. Not not convincingly proven yet. But actually what is so interesting, we've been looking at obese animals and we've been making mice and rats obese uh, in pregnancy and we found remarkably that the young animals grow up obese uh, even though they're eating a normal diet so that's got us really excited. So there's been a
3: fundamental change in their metabolism in some way.
9: Yes and what we're seeing is that they're actually eating more so they have an increase in appetite and they sit around more they're less active so as Professor Bloom was saying earlier it's all a relationship between what you take in and what and how much exercise you do and these animals seem to be eating more and taking less exercise so it's hardly surprising that they actually become a bit fatter. In my previous
3: incarnation as a scientist, I was working in um, epigenetics looking at how the things that happen to your genes when you're developing as a fetus, they can affect the size that you are. And um, a story that also always used to get told in the field was about the, the Dutch mothers. These mm. were women who were mm. pregnant during the war um, who had very little food, and they had babies who were very, very small. Mm. But then when the, so after the war was over and everyone had enough food again, these small babies who'd grown into women then still had small babies themselves. So it suggested there was a change that had actually happened to their genes exactly, yeah. so is this the same thing going on but
9: in well, fact there, there is certainly evidence from from if, if you treat animals with with, with less of, of a dietary intake you, 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 you give them an undernutrition type diet in pregnancy you can show quite categorically that some of their genes are permanently changed and what people have been looking at is the methylation status of the promoter region of a certain genes which control growth and they are remarkably different in the offspring. Of, of animals which have been subjected to undernutrition. On the converse side, we're looking at that now in relation to obesity, and there's much less, less evidence so far, but we're beginning to see data coming out both from our laboratory and others that, that there are permanent changes to the expression of some genes, and that could be through altered methylation status it's very exciting so these are the sort of the
3: switches that have switched genes on on and off yeah and those sort of mechanisms they probably act isn't it quite early on in development and what what sort of time in the development from an egg to a fetus to then a a born baby are are these kind of influences of of maternal weight Mm. acting
9: well we've been doing some work on on pre-implantation embryos that's before the embryo gets embedded in the womb And we've been looking at mitochondrial activity and they're very different if the mother is obese. This is again from animal studies. So it could suggest that very, very early on there's an impact of of obesity. More recently, we've been looking also at the at the the postnatal period the, and during the suckling period, and we think that's incredibly important in relation to the development of the hypothalamus of the of the offspring. And Professor Bloom was talking about that. The hypothalamus is the seat of energy control, and it produces lots of peptides which control appetite, and we're seeing uh, remarkable changes in the expression of those peptides in the in the hypothalamus in the offspring of animals who are obese so it may be that the suckling period is particularly important or late gestation but probably different periods adding all up to to creating a slightly different phenotype in the offspring
3: and to stress this isn't just a, a to do with the sort of the nurture the type of household you're brought up in if there's lots of food and if people are generally overweight it really is something that's that's in the genes and how they interact with the environment
9: yeah i mean it's extremely different and human difficult in human studies to tease out the contribution of genes the contribution of the shared environment and so on and people are trying to do that by by statistical analysis and it is very very hard to prove that this is an acquired um, uh, defect in terms of appetite and obesity, so that 's where the animal studies come in very strongly because obviously we can use animals of exactly the same genetic background, we can control the environment, the nutritional environment, and so on. So the animal studies at the moment are telling us far more than the human studies, uh, but some human studies are planned, including one which we are running in the, in the United Kingdom whereby we're going to try and intervene in obese ladies' pregnancies to try and improve diet. And then we'll be looking at the genes of their children to see whether the intervention has actually had any effect on the expression of some genes relating to appetite control and so on. So we have the potential to do it, but most of the evidence so far has been from animal studies.
3: That sounds absolutely fascinating. Hopefully you'll come back on the show and tell us about your results. That's Professor Lucilla Poston from King's College London.
2: Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're talking this week about the genes that control your body weight and how what you eat and your weight could influence the health of your unborn baby going into the future with that baby's life. In a second, we'll be finding out what happens to wood when it gets petrified, and I don't mean by that scared, and don't forget, of course, we're finding out what happens to a jelly when you make it and then try and make it set with fruit in it.
1: Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists.
2: It's The Naked Scientists, and time now to join Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week.
10: Hello and welcome to Question of the Week from The Naked Scientists with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week, everything's looking a little bit wooden. Hi, this is Aaron in Austin, Texas, and my question concerns petrified wood. I've heard stories of wooden fence posts becoming petrified over time, but I'm not sure that this is scientifically possible. So can you please tell me, how is petrified wood formed, and what exactly does it consist of? Can timber turn to stone that quickly? And just what is it so afraid
11: of? I'm Steve Laurie. I work for the Cedric Museum in the University of Cambridge. Petrified wood is literally where the wood has been replaced by minerals. Sometimes you just get a vague sort of woody texture. It looks a bit fibrous or it's got the ring structure. In the best examples, the whole cell structure is preserved, the cell walls and the cell interior is filled with another one. But you need to have water of the right chemical composition moving through the wood. So it tends to be silica is the the best chemical for replacing the wood. It actually reacts with cellulose in the cell structure It gets bound in, and then over millions of years, it gradually changes from this strange mixture of cellulose and silica into opal and then into a more crystallised form of silica. If you just randomly bang fence posts into British soil, then probably it would take thousands of years to properly petrify a piece of wood in anything like normal conditions. If you have a fence post and throw it into, for instance, some of the hot springs in the Yellowstone National Park, then, yes, you might get a decent bit of petrified wood out the end of it in 100 years. That's very unusual.
10: So it's unlikely that a fence post can petrify in 100 years, but in the US, one team led by Gregory Exahos and Yong Soon Shin did manage to petrify wood in a matter of days. They did it using an acid solution a silica solution, and a stint in an argon-filled furnace. So although you can't petrify wood naturally in less than a thousand years, you can make some in the lab if you so desire. And on our forum we had an excellent answer from ARNDTSPJ, who said that because silicon has similar chemical properties and is a similar size to the element carbon, this chemical replacement is made possible. They also said that another good way to get your wood petrified or permineralized is by leaving it under a convenient volcanic eruption if you happen to find one in this case the timber wouldn't have had time to decompose and the added heat would ease the migration of silicon well next week i'll be back to school to relearn how to count
2: hi i'm luke from new zealand say you had three eggs on the table by simply looking at them you can tell that there are three eggs you don't have to count my question is How many eggs or any other objects do there have to be until you have to start counting them?
10: So are there two, four or just some eggs on the table? If you know the answer, then let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or via the web. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, where you can write what you think for all to see. And if you can't get enough question of the week, you can also find more of me on iTunes.
2: That's right, you can look up Diana Carroll's Question of the Week. You just look up Question of the Week on iTunes and you'll find it. And don't put all your eggs in one basket, of course.
1: Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
3: You are listening to Dr Chris and Dr Kat on The Naked Scientists and now it's time to go back to Dave and Ben who've been making party food in preparation of Chris's and mine's birthdays. They're looking at the wobbly science of jelly.
0: Welcome back to Kitchen Science, or should I say, birthday party food science. Because today we're looking at the science of fruit and jelly, or jello for our American listeners. What we did earlier on is chop up a load of different fruits. We had some orange, some apple, some tinned pineapple, some fresh pineapple, and some kiwi fruit. And on top of that, we poured some perfectly normal supermarket jelly. In fact, this one's lemon flavour, made up exactly as the directions on the packet suggest. That's been in the fridge for a few hours, so hopefully now it should have all set. Now, Dave, there's a strong smell of lemon jelly in here. It all looks very delicious. We really should save it until we see Chris, but as this is an experiment, we should make sure that it's all okay, shouldn't we? I think testing is important in these kind of situations. So uh, here we go, Chris. We're putting us on the line for your birthday party food. So, Dave, which one are you going to try first? Well, we
6: did one with no fruit in it at all as a control, so if we test that one... Well, it looks like
0: perfect jelly, really. It's firm, it's... In fact, I shall have a bit myself. It's firm, it's set properly, it's it's very lemony, it's very good. Excellent. So uh, we know that the jelly, on its own, is perfectly good for Chris's party. So what's the next one? Try some orange. OK, So lemon jelly with orange, I'm not sure if the flavour combination's the best, but they're both sort of citrusy, so let's see how they work. It's set very nicely, if we can fight our way around a piece of orange there, and let's try that one. That's a very nice combination, actually. Yes, that's very good. Okay, that's another one for Chris's party table. Shall we have a go at the apple? Yeah, why not? Once again, it's set firm, and the apple is still quite crunchy. That's delicious, that's a very good combination. So we only have three left to try. We have tinned pineapple, kiwi fruit, and fresh pineapple. So let's try the fresh pineapple. Dave, that hasn't set at all. No, it hasn't. It's still entirely liquid, probably more liquid than when
6: I poured it into the container. It's quite pleasant, although certainly not jelly. I'm sure half the point of jelly is the fact that it's firm and wobbly on a spoon. Maybe we should try the tinned pineapple and see how that is. OK, so they've all been in the fridge exactly the same amount of time. And here we've got the tinned pineapple.
0: And this one has set perfectly well. So far, we know we can use the apple, the orange, the plain jelly, and the tinned pineapple jelly. So we have the kiwi fruit to try. And this one's all runny as well. This one, again, it hasn't worked at all. It's obviously a lot greener than the others, but it hasn't set. So fresh pineapple and kiwi don't set. Yes, that's what I expect, because in pineapple,
6: there's an enzyme called bromelin, and in kiwi fruit, there's another enzyme called actinidin, both of which are what are called proteases. This means that they'll chop up proteins. So is jelly made of protein in that case? Is that why it sets? Yes, the wobbly part of jelly is basically very long proteins called gelatin. They're all long strands, and when you let them cool down, they tangle up with each other, forming a great big tangly mess, and so it won't flow anymore. However, if you put a protease in there, it gets chopped up into much shorter strands, And they're not long enough to tangle, so it won't form a jelly. But the tinned pineapple was fine. So what's going on there? Well, when you heat up these protease enzymes, they get destroyed and become non-functional anymore. So they'll no longer chop up the gelatin. And so tinned pineapple has at some point been cooked and these enzymes have broken down? Yes, if you want to can something, you've got to kill all the bacteria inside it. So you basically got to cook it to kill everything inside the tin. Otherwise, it will ferment gently and the tins start exploding. But why do we find these enzymes in kiwi fruit and pineapple in the first place? Well, you do find enzymes which will chop up proteins in small quantities in almost all fruits and, in fact, anything living. However, it seems that kiwi fruit and pineapple have used this as a defence mechanism. They produce lots and lots of protease enzymes, which will eat anything which tries to eat them. So if an insect sort of burrows in and tries to eat the pineapple, it'll get eaten itself and won't get very far.
0: All of a sudden, you've made pineapple and kiwi seem rather vicious. Don't these enzymes attack me whenever I eat them?
6: Yeah, they do. You may have noticed if you eat too much pineapple or too many kiwi fruit, your mouth actually starts to get all red and painful. That's because the protease enzymes are dissolving your, your mouth and start breaking it down, so it starts to hurt. So why don't we find this in an orange or an apple? Well, they've just developed different
0: mechanisms to avoid being eaten by insects. Well, there we go. But at least for Chris's birthday, we know we have four perfectly good jellies and two that are really far more wobbly than they should be. A very happy birthday, Chris. I hope you enjoy your party food. We may have to test a little bit more of it before we go, but that's all for Kitchen Science this week. There's loads more on thenakedscientist.com slash kitchenscience, including finding out why, if you chew bread for long enough, that will start to taste sweet, almost like jelly itself. We'll be back with another great experiment next week.
2: Thank you, guys. I got a call from the fraud squad this morning asking me why I'm 21 again. But there you are. I hope they left some of that jelly for me to uh, eat after they've tested it. Now, it seems, therefore, from what they were doing, that the protease enzymes that you can find in things like pineapple and kiwi fruits actually break down the gelatin proteins that hold the jelly together and that's what stops it from setting and these proteases are very similar to the proteins in your small intestine that digest your lunch for you so eating things like pineapple and kiwi fruit are helping to do some of your digestion for you hopefully they're not bu- saving you from burning off too many calories which might translate into weight gain let's hope not cat
3: yeah we've got a quick question for steve who's still on the line here it's from ed in wellingborough she wants to know if growth hormones that are given to animals could be having an impact on human obesity
7: Well, growth hormone makes your muscles grow and burns up fat, and in fact it will reduce your pot belly. So it's quite useful in that way. There is a slight disadvantage, which it also causes tumours to grow, being growth hormone, and so your chances of getting cancer, perhaps particularly cancer of the prostate, somewhat increased. Therefore, I'm afraid I can't really recommend it.
2: No, but we may not have a choice. Thanks, Steve. I've uh, got a question here for you, Lucilla. This has been sent in by email by Tad Davidson, who says, I, like, I have a liking for dairy products, but I've been diagnosed with angina recently, and I've come to understand that fat around the midriff is the worst area to accumulate fat. Why should this be?
9: Well, it certainly is, and uh, one of the best evidence is that uh, central fat is, is, is the worst sort of fat. Um, Is telling us that that, that, that's bad news. Um, The reason is probably there are different fat depots in the body and they produce different chemicals. And the ones produced by the uh, fat around the midwif are probably the ones which are most damaging in relation to cardiovascular risk. So I think that's probably your answer.
2: Thanks, Lucilla. Well, that, I'm afraid, is it for this week. We've run out of time. Thank you very much to our guests, Lucilla Poston, Steve Bloom and Mike Mummer, and also to our wonderful production team, Ben Vausler, Dave Ansell, Mira Senthalingam and Diana O'Carroll. Next week, we're exploring the science of smart materials. These are surfaces and substances that can repair themselves if they get damaged. We'll also be finding out how a piece of science stolen from the surface of a lotus leaf has led to the invention of a glass that never needs cleaning. There are window cleaners everywhere that hate the scientists that made that breakthrough. You can find out how it works on next week's Naked Scientists. And if you've got a question for us, send it in chris at nakedscientist.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
1: The Naked Scientist Podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.